Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today, we're going to be talking about an issue that a lot of people face, and that is whether or not to try again if IVF fails. It is a real issue and a real concern for many people. I think you're really going to enjoy this show. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the national infertility and adoption education and support nonprofit, and you can find us and all of our resources at creatingafamily.org. One of the things we do here at Creating a Family is create educational resources and support resources for infertility patients. One resource we have that I think you will really like is a multimedia guide we have on how to choose an infertility clinic. It's full of uh, checklists and questionnaires and uh, graphics to help you understand all aspects of, of of what you need to consider before you choose a clinic. One of the things that we're particularly proud of is the graphics that illustrate how to understand the success statistics They can be pretty confusing, and I really think we nailed it with this, Uh, and I I hope you agree. In fact, check it out, and then um, do us a favor and and let us know. Uh, In order to find this, you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word resources, and click on e-guide, and it will pop right up. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Our friends at Faring have recently launched an all-new resource called My Fertility Navigator. It is a unique, personalized service for people who are struggling to get pregnant and are unsure of where to start on their fertility journey. Once you enroll in the program, the women are matched with a dedicated, live, real human being, fertility navigator, who can offer one-on-one support based on the individual needs of that woman, Uh, whether it's providing information on financial resources or sharing a list of local fertility centers or identifying ways to optimize your fertility. All of these things are available through your navigator. To get more information, you can go to their website, myfertilitynav.com. Let me tell you about something that's coming up. It is uh, the Midwest Reproductive Symposium International. It is a conference that's going to be taking place this June in Chicago. It is the the lineup of of both speakers and uh, exhibitors is fantastic. If you are in the Chicago area, or quite frankly, even if you aren't, this is well worth your trip. Uh, you need to uh, you can register uh, and uh, get more information by going to their website, mrsmeeting.org. Uh, again, I'm really I'm going to be speaking at this conference, and I am really excited about going. It'll be my first time to go, and I've heard great things about it. In addition to our sponsors that I've mentioned above, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson, a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. And we also have Fairfax Cryobank. They are a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. Today, we're going to be talking about should you try again if you have failed at IVF. Uh, IVF is, uh, as we all know, is not cheap. Uh, So you really have to weigh what your odds of success and how can you tell what your odds of success are going to be. Um, Our guest today to talk about this important topic are Dr. Philip Jeanette. 
He is a medical director at Pacific Fertility Center in San Francisco. He is among U.S. News and World Report's top doctors and was voted top doctor in San Francisco. He is also the president or past president of the Bay Area Reproductive Endocrine Society. We also have Dr. Maylene Yao. She is a reproductive endocrinologist. She was formerly on the faculty at Stanford, where she was a NIH-funded investigator looking into IVF prediction models, how you predict success. She has since translated that into the uh, private community by founding or co-founding Unify, which is a company that translates research into online prediction tests. And it, it's, the goal is to personalize prediction for the individual patient. This was a show we did several years ago. Um, the information is still very relevant, and, and the issue, and we see it all the time at Creating a Family, of, of do I try again or do I move on to other family building uh, options? Do I save my money for other family building options? Do I need to move to third-party reproduction or do I need to consider adoption? Or quite frankly, do I need to do we do, do we as a as a partner or me as an individual need to and move on to considering child-free or any other options? Um, I hope you enjoy this show as much as I have. Welcome, Dr. Shanette and Yao, to Creating a Family. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you and share some of what we've learned in San Francisco with your audience. Oh, I'm, I'm, we are really glad to have you because I, we, we've, I know of your organization and uh, I'm thrilled to get your expertise here. I, I want to start with a question from Robin. She said, uh, my doctor says that I have less chance of success with each IVF cycle, but I don't get that. Other than the fact that I'm now 18 months older than when I started, why wouldn't my odds remain the same? Uh, Dr. Yao, can you explain what, uh, why, why would Robin's chances be less now other than mm-hmm. the fact that she's a year and a half older? Sure, sure. That's, a, that's an excellent question. And first of all, I think um, you know, her, uh, probably Robin's doctor for sure knows have a lot has a lot more information about her medical records, so I wouldn't really be able to, you know, um, comment specifically about her situation. But I think right. in general, um, like you said, Don, um, when each pa- for each patient, her ovaries are aging, um, you know, with the pass of time, and just the fact that a patient's going to be doing IVF the second IVF cycle, you know, later than the first. Um, that in itself already means that her ovaries are a little bit older. That could have um, an impact on the chances of having a baby with a subsequent IVF cycle. However, what we have really learned, um, and we've done uh, a lot of research now with several leading IVF clinics, what we have learned is that, you know, the chances of success um, are really determined by and influenced by many factors. And I think doctors have known that for a long time, but there hasn't been a way to really um, analyze or calculate what is your chance based on all the factors um, that a specific patient would have. For example, um, when you go for your first IVF cycle, at that time point, um, a patient would have her age, her body mass index, her uh, ovarian reserve testing, and, you know, some clinics do day three FSH levels, some clinics do antrophollicle count or AMH, antimullerian hormone levels. Um, Any of those could be used, and also semen analysis to get the sperm count, and, of course, the clinical diagnosis. So at that point, when a patient has not yet had, had her first IVF cycle, all those factors could actually be analyzed to give what is the very personalized success rate for that patient in the best of hands. And then, however, when a patient has gone through IVF treatment, um, there's a lot more information that could be known about her situation. For example, as you go through IVF, your doctor's um, probably going to do some blood tests, specifically a blood test called serum estradiol, that measures how your body responds to the treatment, to the hormones that you're injecting um, by making estrogen. And it, cal- it you know, measures the amount of estrogen that's in your bloodstream when you're in treatment. And that is actually an indication for how well your body is responding to the hormones. 
And let me let me let me get, uh, input mm-hmm. here. So the the what you're saying is is uh, to to paraphrase, there is some information that will be gained after you've done your first cycle, that will help give a, a better prediction. At, at first, we're just using everything is pretty general because we're basing it off of. Mm-hmm. How we think you're going to respond, but mm-hmm. after you've right. had a cycle, you then will have more information that can influence uh, and take you out of kind of the general, and so it's more specific information. Would that be a, a fair assessment? Right, that's right. And even with the first, um, before the first IVF, um, you know, other than I think currently um, a lot of people um, look at their age. And age is the most important indicator, but all the other factors can still really put the, you know, make someone's chances a lot higher or a lot lower. So it's yeah. important to consider all of those factors, but especially, um, you summarized it very well, after a patient has gone through the first IVF cycle, there's a lot more information known now. Um, so, for example, how many eggs um, were retrieved, that's another indication of how her body's responding. But not just the eggs, but how many embryos um, result, how many viable embryos result from that treatment, and also, you know, the quality of the embryos. For example, you know, on day three um, of the in vitro culture of these embryos, the embryologist will look at each embryo and note how they, you know, what the embryos look like, how many cells they have, and so on. All that information it can be used to. Um, figure out what are the chances in the next cycle, and um, and I think doctors have a you know pretty good way to assess um, you know if someone has had embryos that have poor quality um, that obviously maybe you know puts her at a lower chance than another person who doesn't have that, but there also you know if there's a way to kind of um, calculate all this very objectively so that each piece of information is going to be used. And it's going to be used to the you know best of our predictive ability to come up with what are what are really the chances of success if the patient were to try another IVF cycle. It, Dr. I think it's so yeah. yeah I think just to add to that, I think it's so important to get an accurate predictor of what's your chance of getting pregnant this month. And I the the question came back to how many IVF cycles you've done. What does that mean? And it, honestly, that doesn't mean a lot. So I think you want to focus on what's the what's the possibility of pregnancy this month. What can I do this month to optimize that and make it as good as it can be? And, 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 and what factors, Dr. Shanette, do you look at to to determine that to get the most accurate prediction? Some of which um, Dr. Gao has already mentioned, but if yeah. you could explain some of those, I think we all know sure. age, and, and we're going to come back to, let's come back to body mass index because I want to spend a little time talking about that later. But what are some of the other factors um, either on the very first, before somebody's ever had their first cycle or um, when somebody has had a failed cycle? If you could explain what some of those are. um, When we're trying to predict, sure, when we're trying to predict fertility, age is number one on the list, you know. It is age, 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 probably number one through ten on the list, because that really fits you into in, into where you are in relation to other women, what your probability of pregnancy is this month. It's age, age, age. Now, after we have that, you can start looking at things like clinical factors like family history. You know, if you had a mom who had a kid at age 42 or a sister who had a kid at more advanced ages, there's a genetic component to that that gets passed through families. Um, and then we start looking at the blood tests and natural follicle counts. Um, the specific blood test that I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of is the, the day three FSH and estradiol level. That's a classic test that's been done for 10 or 15 years. Probably a better test now is anti-mullerian hormone or AMH, um, simply because it's a little more predictable. It doesn't vary with where you are in the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also we we perform an ultrasound to look at the ovaries and, and look at an antral follicle count. Those are the clinical parameters that we can use to predict fertility health. And then if you've had a cycle that either worked or didn't work, I suppose, um, then you would also then move to have you have each, with each cycle you have additional information. Would that be correct? Oh, absolutely. You get a sense of how you're going to respond how many eggs you make, how the sperm performed, 
the embryo quality that you get. You can use all of those to help change the cycle in the future and, and adjust things next time around. Okay, here is a, um, and speaking towards the, the issue of, of adjusting, um, here's a question we have from Leslie. She said, I've had two failed fresh IVF cycles. My doctor thinks I should try again. Each time he has transferred more embryos, first time two and this last time three. I'm 36 now, my husband's 42. It seems like we should be doing something different other than just adding in more embryos. I think that uh, Leslie's, I mean, you can't specifically know, you don't know what her all of her test results are, but if you could, um, and, and I think I'll direct this one to you, Dr. Shanette. Um, how do you tinker with the protocol based on information that you get, or, or do you? Um, uh, and and is, 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 does it make sense to simply add more embryos as you as you go through subsequent cycles? Well, yeah, let's take care of that number of embryos issue first of all. We're getting into a situation in our technology where you don't have to transfer a lot of embryos. We have techniques now for choosing the best out of the group. You can take a batch of six, eight, ten embryos and find which one which one is the most likely to produce pregnancies. And in our program, when we transfer that embryo back, that pregnancy rate ends up being 70 to 80%, very high pregnancy rates yeah. with one embryo going back in. So I think the days of transferring multiple embryos are really limited. It's going to take a while for this technology to really get into the clinics across the country, but I have no doubt that two or three years from now it's going to be one healthy embryo, one healthy child, being born after I that is a recurring theme that we preach over here. At, and yeah. I'm sure there are people in our audience right now who are rolling their eyes. That is something that we do preach a lot here, that the, uh, the intended outcome is one healthy baby. Uh, that is what the best success we can can achieve. So go ahead. I just wanted to uh, jump in on yeah. and, uh, up on your soapbox for a moment. <laughs> Thank you. It's <laughs> my career goal to get that one rolling. Oh, so mine too. you asked you asked about protocols. Um, in broad strokes, there, there's the woman who has a lot of eggs available, and there's the woman who has very few, and then there are the people who are kind of just right in the middle. Those who have a lot of eggs would be a woman that has very long cycles, maybe has periods every six weeks or skips them periodically, and has a very high antral follicle count. Um, if you see an antral follicle count of 20 or more on the ovaries, you know this is somebody who's going to over-respond to the medications. Basically, you have to be very cautious about the stimulation and use some special techniques to minimize the chance of overstimulating. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman who has too few eggs, has a very low antral follicle count, is going to struggle to make enough to, to make this whole process worth her while. Um, and we u- use techniques like the microdose flare protocol, um, we use hormones like DHEA, things to try to get as many follicles developing as we can and, and get that healthiest batch of eggs. So, you, you know, there are different strokes for different folks, different things that we have to have to evaluate and consider in planning that protocol. Okay. Um, Dr. Yao, are there different factors that in any way would – Let's say you've done a fresh cycle and it failed, or I suppose even if it succeeded, mm-hmm. and you're getting ready to do a, a – but you you were fortunate enough to have a frozen embryo. Uh, what factors – are there? Are there, would the factors be any way different or would they be uh, uh, more important when determining whether or not you should do another fresh cycle or whether or not you should uh, use do a, a frozen embryo cycle? Yeah, um, that question is probably, um, you know, the frozen embryos, the quality of the frozen embryos are going to be really determined by how that first IVF cycle went. And so, you know, all of the, you know, treatment response from that first IVF cycle is, you know, are going to be very important. However, you know, a lot, what I know what a lot of people do is that once an embryo is frozen, the quality does not change. So if it was a great um, quality embryo, once it's frozen, well, you can leave it frozen. It's not going to deteriorate in the liquid nitrogen. So I know what some women like to do is to have another fresh IVF cycle and, you know, try to get, you know, some more embryos, have another chance mm-hmm. before their ovaries age further. And if that if those embryos don't work, they can always go back to the frozen embryo from the first cycle. So that depends a little bit on, you know, timing, and it's really a personal 
decision whether a patient wants to go through another cycle or pay for it or if they want to use up the frozen embryos from the first cycle first because, of course, you don't have to pay for another fresh IVF cycle again. And then, you know, if that doesn't work, to think about whether to do another IVF cycle. But one, you know, one thing that I want to go back to that was raised earlier is really how much, you know, how important is age? Um, now, what we found in our, you know, when we make, develop these um, prediction models is that at the time point when you're about to go into your first IVF, your age is about, accounts for about 60% of your chances. That means, though, that other factors still count for 40, up to 40% or almost half. But then after your first cycle, age becomes much less important. It only accounts for 40% of your chances. And all the other information that you have gained now from your first cycle, um, but also information like your body mass index and also whether you had miscarriages before. Um, and another uh, question that was raised earlier was how many, you know, does it matter how many IVF cycles? And so it's not that whether someone had one previous IVF cycles or two IVF cycles, is that going to decrease your chances? It doesn't work exactly like that because every patient is different. So, for example, if you have a patient um, who, who has, you know, all her lab tests are very good about her ovarian reserve testing and her embryo quality has been great and she had two previous IVF cycles, she may not really have a less chance with her third cycle. However, another patient who may be the same age um, but her embryo quality was not as good as this other patient and she's also had two other cycles before, well, that actually is going to weigh differently on her chances. And so what we're finding is that each piece of information by itself seems like it can tell you whether your chances are going to be better or worse, but unless you put it all together with the other information, you're not really going to know what in the end what it means for you. Um, and the other factor that's really important, I think, for patients to know is um, your body mass index. There's a lot of talk about, you know, weight or, you know, some, some people recommend losing some weight before IVF cycle, and that really has to be taken on an individual level. For example, if somebody has a body mass index of 28, it doesn't really mean it's going to harm her chances that much. It depends on what her other factors are like. Um, so unless you put it all together, it's really hard to gauge, you know, w what your chances are. Well, I do want to spend some time talking about body mass index because that it, it, it seems to cut both ways in the sense that it is one of the factors that is the most easily, and I, I'm using air quotes around the word easy, but it, it's something that is within the control of the patient up to a point. And yet um, it is often a huge struggle uh, for some women. Uh, and and so how important, how important is it, I think, is the ultimate question a lot of people have. Um, so, Dr. Jeanette, how, how much does body mass index influence success and and then let me come back and then a question that uh, that uh, Dr. Yao alluded to: How much weight would a woman need to lose to increase her chances? Uh, and then Dr. Yao, if you would uh, come in and talk about how it might be how how that is not the same for each patient and why that might be the case. But uh, just having just now asked three questions, which is terribly confusing. <laughs> let me let me go with you, Dr. Jeanette, to talk just sure. in general about body mass indexes influence over IVF yeah. success? Sure. BMI definitely is a factor. Um, and, you know, you can have a low BMI or a high BMI. The very thin, underweight patients um, run into problems with ovulation issues, low progesterone levels, not having enough hormone support for the pregnancy. Um, those who are on the higher side um, run into more issues with problems with egg retrieval, problems with ovarian stimulation, and then problems during pregnancy. Now, BMI, um, unfortunately, is a rather coarse measure, and it's tough to get accurate predictions on outcomes. And I, I usually prefer just to focus on fitness 
you know, working on nutrition, making sure you're eating a good, complete pregnancy-supporting diet, being on prenatal vitamins, including omega-3s in your diet, complex carbs, those kinds of things, um, and, and having an exercise program going on. Now, if you pursue that, your BMI is going to come down if you're on the high side, um, but it's going to come down slowly, and you're not going to create other problems like ovulation disorders and things like that as you, as you lose a bit of weight. I don't focus on a specific target BMI um, because I think it's tough to achieve that in the limited time that we have available. And frankly, most of my patients want to get pregnant right here, right now. Yep. And don't want to take the three to six months that it would take to, to lose a substantial amount of weight. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's something we work on, but it's just one factor out of many. Yeah. And Dr. Yao, why does the importance of BMI differ mm-hmm. by patient? Yeah. Uh, why is it more important for some patients than in others? And 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 you can talk to it each way. I'm I'm just glad Dr. Shinette pointed out that BMI cuts both ways, too low and too high. That's right, Don. And I agree with Dr. Shinette. So, um, you know, the time that it takes, time is really precious um, for our patients. And you know, the time if the time that it takes to lose a certain amount of weight has to really be weighed against, you know, how that's going to affect your ovarian function. Um, because your oocytes are also going to be, you know, aging during that time. So, and, and that's why BMI by itself shouldn't really be taken out of the equation. Um, and the reason why BMI does not have the same weight for each patient, for example, if a patient has, um, let's say a patient is 38 years old, she's had one IVF cycle already, and, um, and the semen analysis shows the sperm count is really good, and all the other factors are, are great. Now, you know, and BMI, and let's say her BMI is very high. And in her situation, let's say the only factor that's working against her is BMI. And, of course, I'm making this oversimplistic because right, yeah. you know, usually it's not, you know, so clear like that. Usually every patient has some factors that are going for her and some that are not. Um, and, and if that's the only factor that's really working against her, that's really something to discuss, you know, with a doctor. Is it worth it um, to lose the weight? And also, that's where, you know, our personalized testing also can help a fa- patient figure that out. Because if you enter all that information in and you get back the report says your chances are like 40% or 42%, that's really good. And so I don't think it's really worth your time to you know, lose more time to to try to lose weight, even though your weight might be higher than you'd like. Um, in a different situation, though, uh, in another situation, for example, if a patient has ovarian reserve testing, let's say AMH or antral follicle count or day three FSH, that's already quite you know suboptimal. It's really not as good as you know you know what what her doctor would like to see. And the you know em- the quality of her embryos were already not that good from the previous cycle, and she does have a you know her weight is higher than um, she'd like. However, in that situation, she may already have several other factors going against her that w- that have much more weight on her chances than you know the, than her body mass index. And in that case, after you figure that out. Um, it really may not, you know, be a big deal what her body mass index is because the other factors already have such a high impact. And I think that's where, you know, it's good for patients to know that because I know without this information, a lot of women, you know, what I don't want to happen is women go away blaming themselves um, for the weight, thinking that is the one thing that's hindering their success. Yeah. when there may be other factors that are really going against her that are just have much more waiting. Um, and, and it's important to really know that so that each patient can, you know, understand what is, you know, what are the factors affecting her chances and, and not be too burdened by factors that are not as important. Right. Weight and BMI I look at as, as a supporting factor. Um, the real big issue in fertility care for for everyone is getting a healthy embryo, you know, at least one healthy embryo to lead to a healthy child. And we looked, let me just share with you some early data that we're putting together. Um, You know, we have this new technology for screening out embryos. They're 
number of different methods that we do it. Um, but just let me put this out there. A woman under 30, you know, 29, 25, 21, on average in our hands produced six good quality healthy embryos. And each one of those six embryos is going to have a good chance of a pregnancy. Um, a woman at age 34, 35 made three, and a 40-year-old made one. Um, you know, so there's a big relationship mm -hmm. here of age and that getting that quality embryo. That's the big factor that's going to determine your pregnancy rates, whether you can get to that good, healthy embryo, find it, and put it back. Um, Just before we leave the discussion of BMI, I did want to circle back to something that uh, Dr. Shanette mentioned, uh, and that is uh, body mass index can also influence a pregnancy outcome uh, and, 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 uh, and can cause complications in pregnancy. Uh, and since it, that's not specifically the topic of this show, but I wanted to uh, to mention that. Um, and, and I realize neither of you are high-risk obstetricians, but uh, it, 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 would I be correct in assuming that for the average overweight patient, it doesn't really become a factor, that it's, it's primarily a factor with the morbidly obese? Um, let me throw that question to you, Dr. Jeanette, and... and uh, uh, Dr. Yao, if you happen to know the answer, then, then chime in. Yeah, high blood pressure and diabetes, which are both problems associated with obesity, get to be much more common with very high BMIs. And we look at a cutoff of about 30 as being where the risks really rise dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's some risk at lower BMIs, but it's not a lot, and it's something that can be addressed with um, lifestyle changes and, and good mm -hmm. diet. And even during pregnancy and just being aware. All right, you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. This show is produced with the support of our sponsors, including Cryos International, a New York sperm bank, which is part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Today we're talking about should I try again, what to do when IVF fails. Our guests are Dr. Mi Lin Yao. She is a reproductive endocrinologist formerly on the faculty at Stanford and co-founder of Unify, providing personalized IVF prediction tests for patients and doctors. We also have Dr. Philip Chenette. He is the medical director at Pacific Facility Center in San Francisco, and he is the president of the Bay Area Reproductive Endocrine Society. Um, we have a question that uh, came in from Tiffany uh, coming back to the issue of uh, if the first fresh cycle failed, uh, considerations for whether or not to go right then and do another fresh cycle or to utilize the uh, frozen embryos. Um, and just to uh, uh, recap, uh, what Dr. Yao was talking about was the um, the fact that given because age is an important factor, um, you will, more time will pass if you do a frozen embryo transfer at that point. The embryos are set in time as to the time when they were frozen, therefore they're not deteriorating. So that that makes some argument. Obviously, money is a huge factor here, but that might make some argument to consider at least consider doing another fresh cycle when you are the same age. However, Tiffany is asking, is there an advantage to spacing out, taking the the uh, ovulatory stimulation drugs, and as she says, let your body recoup um, um, from the strong drugs? Uh, Dr. Shanette, do you have an opinion on, on that? Well, um, there's been a number of papers published looking at exactly that issue, and, and I think the answer is no. It does not really make sense to space things out. The outcomes with sequential IVF cycles are about the same. There's no decline in those kinds of numbers with repeated treatments. There is some room for uh, individualizing that, though, in that a woman who has open fallopian tubes and you know and fairly you know unexplained infertility, quote unquote probably has a better pregnancy rate after being on the fertility drugs for a month or so. So taking a month off and just trying on your own is a very reasonable thing to do. I didn't I wasn't aware of that. Now, so yeah. your odds in let's say you've done a cycle, an IVF cycle, um you know with the, you know, the the, the full bore uh, auditory stimulation, you get your embryos, you did a fresh transfer that 
the woman a woman would be her fertility would have increased not on its own obviously because you've been taking this uh but for uh so her chances of getting pregnant without uh treatment would have risen somewhat right it's a mild effect but it is that's real where oh. something about being on the fertility drugs and going through the process activates your system the next month and just helps you ovulate a little bit better is it residual drugs in your system uh, that that are that are acting, or is it just that your perhaps your body has gotten into the into the groove, so to speak? Yeah, exactly. I think it's the, the way to think about it is it's kind of a washout that happens. You know, you, you the fluids that are in your pelvic area improve, and you know the sperm have been in practice because you've been using them, and you know those kinds of things. <laughs> It's just a combination of things that seems to help a bit. Now, I, I, you know, it's kind of hard to count on those kinds of things. Most people who pursue IVF have been trying on their own for a year already. So, yeah. you know, there there are other factors like tubal disease and sperm issues and things that are going to prevent a pregnancy from happening. But, it, you know, in that unexplained infertility situation, it's probably worth a try. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and, and if not, even if your body doesn't need to recoup, often your pocketbook does, so... <laughs> You know, it's you know we for are, no other reason. We are thinking a lot about banking, you know, taking that fertility when you're young and saving it for later. And you can do that either in the form of eggs or as fertilized embryos. Um, that We're getting more and more interest here. I'm, I'm finding it fascinating the, the way that the interest has increased in egg freezing. Um, it, of course, had been increasing before ASRM finally changed their position. Um, we were frustrated because we, we weren't wanting to do too much on it because it was as long as ASRM was saying experimental, we had to be very cautious. But because uh, we, we pride ourselves on medically accurate, unbiased information, therefore ASRM's <laughs> continuing to call it experimental was uh, we felt limiting for us. But anyway, uh, now that is no longer an issue. And, and uh, But uh, even before, in the last two years, I would say, the interest in egg freezing has both for women in their 20s, but also, quite frankly, women in their 30s has been really pretty remarkable. Yeah, the best data that we have right now says that frozen eggs and fresh perform identically, same pregnancy rates. Yeah, and that's, yeah, and that, it, it, the way, this is an aside because it's not the topic of today's show, but the way technology has developed in this area has been pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. I think the you know women who are in their 20s and maybe early 30s, I mean, they have a lot more that they can do now to protect their fertility. So they're um, really, you know they're really fortunate. And I think part of the effort that I, when I speak to a lot of um, uh, doctors out there in the community is really to raise the awareness, too, so that women do know about those options and that they do know that, you know, how drastically fertility can decline, you know, as they age. And that message is still, you know, not really, um, you know, out there. So I think a lot of people are trying to just raise that awareness. Amelia, yeah. that's what's so fascinating to me about your technology that, you know, it's not just about helping people get pregnant. It's about helping people understand their reproductive system and, and their reproductive potential and being able to plan their reproductive life. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's, yeah I, I, it is. It's been amazing in that uh, we do have more control. I always caution, though, that, you know, we don't have as much control uh, yes, the techniques are good, and yes, there are uh, egg freezing is it's a great resource. I still worry that that it's not necessarily. There are many reasons that are valid and 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 and, and important for postponing uh, mm -hmm. childbearing. But I yeah. still get nervous when people are postponing it until their 40s, and we're still having lots of people in their 40s who are coming to us um, asking for information about uh, how to get pregnant. Yeah, right. that's right. I, I think the you. most important thing is to get the get the most accurate information out to patients and and women who are not patients yet. Um and part of what we're trying to do is to, you know, get that information out through these kind of prediction tests because what we've seen just from talking to many doctors is that um after one IVF cycle that doesn't work, a lot of patients get discouraged. Um, when yeah. a lot of them actually have excellent chances, but they don't realize that. Um, and I think, you know, using these age categories 
um, has really um, hurt people's um, you know chances because they don't realize what excellent chances they might have. And so we want to give that information to people by helping them realize um, that IVF could be a really good option, even though they've you know failed one IVF cycle, one or more IVF cycles. And one of the things that we've found from our research is that more than half the patients are going to find that their chances are a lot better than they have thought and, and what their doctors even have thought when, you know, based on the traditional age estimates. So I would really encourage if there are patients who are uncertain about whether to do another IVF, um, I would really encourage them to you know, you know, try this out and to get the most accurate information um, so that even if they do decide not to go ahead with IVF, it is because they, you know, not because of misinformation. And what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do is help women, help women understand where they sit today and what will be the implications of the decisions you make today and next year and five years from now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not in concept really encouraging women to delay their fertility, not at all. I mean, the, the best thing you could possibly do is get pregnant right now. What we're what we're trying to do is help them understand their fertility and make decisions, you know, to help them live live their lives and have a good reproductive life along with everything else. Yeah, we always say here information is power and and, and absolutely and it is power. It's powerful because there are a lot of factors. You've got your your career to think about, you've got your a marital status, you've got the you know the, the um and, and you know the the state of your relationship and and different things. There's so many things. Mm-hmm. Um let me come back to a topic that uh Dr. Yao brought up and that is how do miscarriages influence your chances? It, let's say you've had now, and we need to speak of more than just one because, uh, particularly now when our detection of pregnancies uh, can happen at such an early stage, mm-hmm. we see many people who have um, very early one very early uh, miscarriage, and it's likely that's nothing different from it's always been happening. We just now are able to detect the pregnancy so early that we know about it. But if a woman has had repeated uh, miscarriages. Um, Dr. Schnitt, how does that affect her chances for the next pregnancy making it? Yeah, that's a great question. Recurrent miscarriage um, is a problem that we finally have a really good answer to, and it all comes down to choosing a healthy embryo. Again, the same things we've been talking about. Um, But you get a look you have to look at other factors um one common cause of miscarriage is a problem uterus um fibroids very thin endometrial lining a condition known as Asherman syndrome those kinds of things you need to look for and um sometimes we can fix those sometimes we have to encourage a woman to use a gestational carrier as as uh, a logical um option um men certainly contribute to that recurrent miscarriage problem and there's some studies that need to be done on the male side um, and then there are, you know, concerns about ovulation, progesterone support, and those kinds of things that we need to look for. Um, are there some testing? Um, I, I think I know that the answer may be yes, but um, what is the research showing as far as testing of embryos uh, to determine the likelihood that they will implant and grow for the full nine months? Yeah, that that's such exciting stuff to us right now, and, and definitely a big wave of the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most miscarriages are from an abnormal embryo, a bad embryo, um, this whole aneuploidy problem. Um, The embryo has to control cell division in a way that it takes those 23 pairs of chromosomes and duplicates them with absolute fidelity over and over and over again. And that's hard to do. And the truth is these embryos make mistakes in that all the time. Um, most embryos that form are abnormal. You know, they have missing or extra chromosomes. So the ability to look through these embryos and choose the best one and, and select that one that has good chromosomes goes a long way toward reducing miscarriage rates. Latest data we have on that is that the miscarriage rate dropped down to 6% or 1 in 20 from about a 30% miscarriage rate. Otherwise, that's down uh, by, you know, by five times, five times lower miscarriage rate after doing that chromosome testing of early embryos. We will be doing an upcoming show on just this topic with some of the leading researchers who presented papers at the um, ASRM conference this past uh, fall. Uh, I think it's exciting as well to um, 
the way that the research is, is, is moving. That's right. And, you know, for women out there who have had, you know, one or two miscarriages, I mean, the most important thing, like Dr. Jeanette said, is to get a complete diagnostic workup to make sure that there's no other causes that can be fixed. And actually, if your doctor finds a cause that can be fixed, that's great. Um, then you can fix that and then, you know, go on to, you know, to other recommendations if you need IVF or not. Um, but what we found in our research is that, you know, if there are no other known causes for the miscarriages, having had one or two miscarriages may not actually compromise your chances at all. And in fact, um, some of the women who have had one or two miscarriages um, but have otherwise had a complete diagnostic workup to show that there are no other abnormalities have really, you know, may have higher chances. Um, and who knows, that may be just because, you know, they're, they have actually proven that their eggs can be fertilized and can actually go on for enough days to give you the positive beta HCG pregnancy test result. So, you know, don't, you know, just because you've had one or two miscarriages, don't be very discouraged about it. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Here is a, uh, this actually came in as a suggestion on our um, Facebook support group, the Creating a Family Facebook support group, um, as one of the suggestions of what this woman had wished she had known uh, at the beginning of her infertility journey. But I, I, I'm using it here as well because it, it highlights an interesting point. She writes, I wish I had known that nothing would have ever worked for me using my body. I wish I had not done countless IVFs with my eggs and donor eggs. Each IVF was paid out of pocket, and now I don't have the funds to use a circuit, which we want to do. I wish all the doctors would have just given me the advice to stop using my body anymore, but instead they kept on wanting to try more IVFs. You know, um, from sitting where I sit, which is I speak uh, uh to many in the patient community because we are an outreach to the patient community, education, support of the patient community. But we also um, interview doctors every week and we have uh, uh, speak with doctors a lot. So I, I feel in some ways that I, I hear different things depending on who I talk to. The patients I do often hear that they feel, if not pressured, certainly overly encouraged perhaps is how they might say it or they might say pressured to continue on the infertility escalator where it's the next step and they just keep going and going. And yet when I go to ASRM, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Conference, or I'm sure it, it, I haven't been, but I'm sure at your conference, the, the Bay Area Reproductive Endocrine Society conferences, and when, when we speak to uh, reproductive endocrinologists, that isn't what I hear from them. What I hear from them is often that that one of the problems they have is 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 trying to discourage people who want so badly and to offer them it, helping them decide when to get off the infertility escalator, the treatment escalator, um, and and consider other options. And they feel a great deal. They tell me that they feel a great deal of pushback from the patient community. So I suppose it. I don't really know where we go with this. I suppose it somewhat depends on on where you're sitting and, and, and what your desires are and if our desires are blinding us towards our, either the optimism one side or, or perhaps just the overwhelming desire for a child. Uh, Dr. Shanette, do you have any thoughts on this as to oh, sure. yeah, where, how, how this falls out from a, from a doctor's perspective? Oh, you're so right. And I think our the big problem is our predictive tools – um, you know, trying to tell the woman in front of us, what's your chance, is not good, you know. There's a lot of doubt about the estimates that we give and uncertainty. So we're actually trying to manage that by changing the focus to one of, from one of treatment, which will always be important, to one of prevention. You know, what can you do to prevent yourself from getting into this situation by looking at your life and reproductive mm -hmm. potential and all those kinds of things. It's always going to be a challenge. I mean, and I'm so pleased again at Unify's work at um, helping us define those um, predictive parameters better. Mm -hmm. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Doctor. Yeah. Yeah, Don. So I think this is one area where um, our prediction test can really be of help to both doctors and patients, 
mm-hmm. because if they're I both... I thought about that when you were speaking. I agree with you. Yeah, because when they're both looking at the same report, and the doctor obviously has much more information than our system would have, and they could modify that and explain that to the patient, but at least it is one piece of very objective information that both doctor and patient can look at together and can discuss, and that really helps with the conversation. It helps the patient ask the right questions and ask the questions so that the doctor can at least know what are the questions on the on the patient's mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the tricky thing about making these decisions is that every patient has a different threshold for what success rate they would accept uh, or they would look for in order to decide to go for a treatment. So, for example, some patients, if you tell them they have 10% success rate, they would think it's well worth it to go with the treatment. Another patient, they would not go for treatment unless the success rate is 40%. And everybody is different, and it's very important, and I think doctors uh, recognize that and know it's a subjective you know, um, decision. However, what can really help that conversation is at least to have the right um, numbers, to have the right success rate, so that everybody is talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that that would be helpful. And for a doctor who who is frustrated because they feel that the patient is continuing uh, down a path that that having having something to actually look at um, would be helpful from the doctor's standpoint when that happens. Mm-hmm. And I think it also helps with patients who are trying to decide whether to go for donor egg IVF or not. And of course, for many patients, that might be a big step. Um, financially as well as, you know, for other um, reasons. Mm-hmm. And having that, you know, other piece of objective information, I think, could really help the doctor and the patient have that conversation about whether mm-hmm. you know, IVF with donor eggs is the right direction for that yeah, patient. Do we, is now the time to start considering this option, even though that's not your first choice? Um, you know, looking at these test results, is this is this a more logical way to you know, for you to to, to become a parent. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Shanette, is there a way, is there a a general rule of thumb that says how many cycles is is too many or uh, how much is too much? And I guess what I'm I'm coming back to is it doesn't happen often, but uh, probably about four or five months ago I was consulting with a, talking with a patient who was on her 11th IVF cycle. Yeah, and, and part of me is, I am I am perhaps a lone wolf here by saying this, but at some point these medications that we're taking, even though there has been little proof of any long-term detrimental health impact, I am convinced that that more that that more research will show these medications are strong, and it's one thing to say doing them once, twice, three or four times, but. You know, people. So, is there a, is there a rule of thumb that says, after so many cycles, both for both because your chances of success aren't that great, and also just because it's not good for your body to keep doing this? Yeah, in our program nowadays, almost nobody does that many IVF cycles. I mean, you know, if we can't get a pregnancy established in three or four treatment cycles, it's time to move on. But I think. One important thing to reemphasize is that we're getting much better at teasing out the factors that are involved, the uterus, the sperm, the egg, the embryo, and we'll know. I mean, I mentioned unexplained infertility and put it in quotes earlier because the truth is it doesn't really exist anymore. We do know what's going on. Really? You can figure out pretty well how these factors are affecting your individual fertility and make decisions about whether it makes sense to try again. Well, that's interesting. I um. Because we still hear of uh, a number of people who are, and of course, I think it's probably the most frustrating diagnosis. But that is, you know, the diagnosis of, of unexplained. And um, so, uh, perhaps uh, at this point, uh, if you still have a diagnosis of unexplained, you need to be going through greater testing. Right. It's worth a really careful review and looking back at all of those factors to see where the problems really are. You know, get a new set of eyes to look at what's going on with you. Yeah, I think that that would be uh, great advice for someone. Doctor, yeah, I've heard you say before that each woman's ovaries age at a different pace, and that obviously affects your chances of success with IVF. 
Do we know what causes some ovaries to age faster than others, or or I guess vice versa, what causes some ovaries to age more slowly? That's right. So I think um, a lot of research has been done in that area, and definitely um, it's a very complex question. A lot of it can probably be explained by genetics. Um, However, there are few genes uh, and gene mutations that have been identified that uh, to really accelerate ovarian aging. And in the extreme examples, um, we know some of those mutations that can lead to premature ovarian menopause. Um, but that really only explains a very, very small percentage of patients. And, and those patients are not even coming through for infertility. I mean, they're really not having menopause at a very early age. Um, however, they're probably... Um, other more other milder genetic mutations that do not cause a severe um, problem like premature menopause, but can cause your ovaries to be aging, um, you know, faster than in other women. And I think you know we're going to learn a lot more in the next few years. There's a lot of effort in the area of um, genomic sequencing and you know um, looking at uh, the whole genome, meaning all of the you know gene variations that uh, patients have. And I think hopefully we'll be able to identify some of these variants. And I think you know um, in a few years we may be seeing uh, you know genetic tests that may, you know, tell you what are your chances to have infertility earlier than other people. Um, And I think that's also an area where, you know, prevention, a lot of prevention can be done if patients know that they're at risk. Um, And and right now we just don't have, you know, the most sophisticated way and a very accurate way to, you know, use genetics to test this right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the... um for our last question, um, Dr. Shinette, you've talked about some about um, unexplained infertility, and that kind of begs the question of how does your, or maybe I should say does, does your diagnosis affect your chances of success both with your first IVF cycle, but uh, keep in keeping with the the, uh, the topic or the theme of this show for your subsequent, um, what are the more common diagnoses? And, and how does that, how does the diagnosis itself influence your odds of success? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question, and it really depends on what we find. Um, for the diagnosis to affect the success rates, it has to be pretty clear what's going on. And a typical thing might be, a, you know, a big fibroid in the uterus or, or an endometrial polyp or something affecting the implantation site. That kind of thing is going to have a big effect on outcomes and ability to conceive and potentially is repairable. I was going to say the good news with that would be it would be one would hope that that surgery might well be able to you know fix the problem. Right. Yeah. Um, ovarian reserve issues often are a little tougher to address, but you can certainly use measurements of ovarian reserve as predictors of outcome and uh, to a limited extent there are things you can change there. Um Sperm factors, the, the sperm factors are pretty, pretty well going to be um, identified and defined before you go into treatment, so that shouldn't be right. an issue as far as a yeah. treatment cycle. Yeah. Uh, very individual. For for each, yeah, for each diagnosis and then and then for each patient within the diagnosis as well. That's right. And in our research, what we have found is that um, certain, before your first IVF, certain diagnoses, actually, you know, tend to, you know, have patients that have higher success rate. And and also, overall, we have to, you know, keep in mind that IVF is really a treatment that is there to overcome a lot of these diagnoses. So if you have blocked tubes, you're not ovulating, well, IVF is supposed to override all of those issues. Um, and so that's why the clinical diagnosis might not, most of them might not really affect your chances that much, ultimately. All right, on that optimistic note, I suppose, <laughs> uh, let me thank you, Dr. Shanette and Dr. Yao, for being our guests today on Creating a Family. To get more information on Unify, you can go to their website, which is unifyunifyy.com. To get more information on Dr. Shanette or on the Pacific Facility Center, you can go to their website, which is handily named Pacific Facility Center, all one word, 
www.thelatestdevelopmentsinfertility.com. To stay in touch with the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as receive the upcoming week's blog and show topic, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the top left side of any page at creatingafamily.org. And while you're there, Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. You can uh, click join on any of the pages of our site, or you can go to Twitter and find, there's a couple of ways to find us there. You can uh, connect with me personally, Dawn Davenport 1, or with Creating a Family at, at Creating a Family. Both of those on Twitter. On Facebook, there's about three ways you can do it. One, connect with me personally, Dawn Davenport 1. You can like our Facebook page, which is easy to find, uh, facebook.com slash family. Or you can join the Creating a Family Facebook support group, which is not as easy to find, unfortunately. Thank you, Mr. Facebook. Uh, you can find it the easy. It's not hard to find. You just need to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and the group will pop right up there. Actually, the group and the page will. Thank you for joining us today. I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.